0: Hello and welcome to the Recovering From Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering From Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Folks, I am so pleased to introduce you to Dr. Mark Reimers. He is a computational neuroscientist at Michigan State University, where he researches how animal brains work and how human genes affect brain function. His broader aim is to ground our understanding of feeling and thought in facts of biology. Dr. Reimers was raised a Christian, but found a path to humanism in his twenties. Since then, he's been a humanist leader and a speaker for over a decade in Virginia and now in Michigan. Dr. Reimers, welcome! I'm so glad you're here this evening. Thank you, Eric.
1: Glad to be here, and um, hope we'll have an interesting discussion. So, yeah,
0: there's um, been there's the uh, room is packed with well over hundred people here, and I think that this topic is going to be pretty darn interesting with them.
1: Great, well, of course. And as I I've told the organizers, I'd like to do you know part of what you know happens in a humanist um, meeting is you get to You get to ask questions and you get to raise objections you know there's no final truth (laughs) and so um i'm going to pause at several points during the presentation to sort of take questions and respond to them or arguments um and remember nobody has the final truth and i'll start
0: sharing screen if that's okay eric yeah that sounds great okay Oh, um, and uh, if you, if at any time you want to bring up the poll and, and uh, kind of look at the results, let me know and and we can share the results. Sure, okay.
1: Uh, let me get the view going here. And then I think we should be good to go. Yep. All right, so I'm gonna take as my starting point the question that gets asked so many times now, which is, is there something about our, our human nature or our brain wiring that makes us be religious? Uh, you know, Those of you who have uh, come through Campus Crusade uh, for Christ will remember the phrase, there's a God-shaped hole in the human heart. Is there any truth to that? Or can we say anything about that from neuroscience and biology? And I'm just taking two Leading thinkers who've answered this in completely opposite ways, uh, Richard Dawkins and John Gray, um, and just as a, a little bit of a, a, a look forward, uh, I I think there's a good deal of truth uh, in both of, in in both of them, but I will probably come down a little closer to what Dawkins says. But we'll see how th- see how that goes. So, if we want to ask this question about something about all human beings, you know, something about human nature. One quick test we can do is sort of cross-cultural comparison. So, you know, we're used to a particular kind of Western society, but that's really a minority um, among human experience. So, supposing we look across a variety of societies, and I re- recall being quite struck when I first visited uh, Thailand to see uh, the kinds of of uh, ornate religious architecture that I had only seen in Catholic churches in Europe previously, uh, but even though they had evolved or developed quite independently, they had um, arrived at a lot of the same kinds of um, of observances and uh, practices and and even architecture. So you might get the sense that well maybe maybe religion is sort of deep deeply wired in us. Uh, But then if you look even more broadly, uh, if you look at sort of primitive agricultural societies, you find very different kinds of religions. And if you look at hunter gatherer societies, uh, you see that they have practices that, you know, are, they they might be called religious, but they're very, very unlike any kind of uh, religious practice. And keep in mind that human beings lived more or less like modern hunter gatherers for most of human evolution. And that's the, you know, that's in some sense the true reference we should be looking at, not necessarily other civilized people who live in organized societies because we're really kind of atypical. Uh, we are not in some sense normal. So let's let's start with a couple of questions um, and feel free to answer these in the chat. Um, So if you're looking for a biological explanation of religion, what aspects of religion do you think are most likely to be explainable? And what kinds of biology do you think is likely to be useful in explaining those? Dr. Reimer, uh,
0: while um, folks are answering the chat, uh, I failed to mention this earlier, we have some folks who are on the phone. um, And so if, there's some text on the slide, if you wouldn't mind reading it, or I, I'm happy to read it either way, just so that those folks can see what's on, see quote unquote, what's on the slide.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll be able to read a lot of it. Um, some, okay, any, any comments? So I'm going to hazard some, some guesses. Uh, well, of course, I, you know, I know what I'm going to say. But I, I would say, you know, religion is a human behavior. So we would look for some biological explanations in the organ that directs behavior—that is, the brain—but we might also look for explanations in terms of uh, physiology or in terms of genetics. So let's let's take a look at how those pan out. So first, um, some bad news. Um, you know, and and this is, I think you know, characteristic of all rational attempts to a- explain you know, deep aspects of human, uh, the human condition is that we don't have a coherent scientific account that, you know, explains all of the diverse religions and all of the individual differences in religiosity. We have mostly indirect evidence and it's based on relatively few studies. You, you can't get grant money from the US government to study religion in the United States um you can in europe the good news is that we do have some convergent evidence we have about brain activity during religious experience and about what those brain regions do in other studies so we do have i think enough that's worth at least presenting at this point but as i said at the beginning there's no final answers (laughs) um and uh the you know the the expectation should be that the, um, you know, the knowledge about this uh, biology of religion will grow over the next several decades. I'm gonna show you lots of these pictures of uh, brain um, activation. And you've probably seen these in popular science journals. Uh, Again, these are idealizations and averages of data. These are not any one person's brain activity. Uh, So you should always, you know, take anything you see with uh, a a good, a healthy dose of salt uh, and, um, uh, you know, just, just look for convergent evidence. So let's start with religious practices and religious experiences. And let's start with the quintessential religious practice, which is prayer. So what happens in your brain when you pray? for when you did pray. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> so um, again, you uh, a lot of Christians have cooperated, and um, some members of other religions have cooperated in religious practice studies. And the idea is you you try to measure brain activity. In this case, um, uh, should gave them um, instructions to pray, some Norwegian Lutherans in an MRI scanner. Uh, and uh, reported that the area of the brain that became the most, you know, most active was the striatum. Uh, striatum is uh, an area sort of at the center of the brain. I don't know if you can see my pointer. I'm sort of tracing out that. Is that? Can you see a pointer? Yeah, we or can not? see
0: your your pointer. Is that 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 earlobe looking thing? Is that the hypothalamus? Hypothalamus would be down here. Okay. So you're,
1: you'd be um, be looking at so, so this is sort of a C-shaped structure in the middle, sort of right in the middle of your brain. You sort of if you think of your brain like a, a coconut, um, this would be the coconut and this would be the husk.
0: <laughs> I love you describing the head in school as a coconut. <laughs> That's fantastic. So um
1: striatum's involved in lots of things, but perhaps, it's most involved in desire, Uh, and that's a a consistent theme. So a number of other people have done similar studies and found similar um, activation. Probably some of you came through Pentecostal religions, and you may have engaged in or heard uh, speaking in tongues, Um, and I, I don't think I need to debate, you know, whether there's any languages being spoken, but um, there has been at least one study of uh, glossolalia uh, and finds um, a kind of paradoxical thing, more um, activation in the parietal cortex and a sort of suppression of some of the um, activity in the striatum.
2: You know what it's like to journey out of a once cherished belief. Maybe you were devoutly religious, escaped a cult, or perhaps you simply navigated out of some very difficult days, and now you'd like to help someone else do the same. Recovering From Religion is a wonderful support organization for people who feel confused, troubled, and alone as they come to grips with the possibility that they no longer hold a religious belief, or that they risk losing everything if they're honest with themselves and others about their journeys. These people need our help and recovering from religion needs yours. RFR is seeking volunteers. Perhaps you're formerly religious, or you have a specific skill set like speaking a foreign language. Maybe you're just a good listening ear. The RFR volunteer training program will help you translate those abilities into critical assistance, encouragement, and support for the men, women, and youth who contact RFR every day from all over the world. You can relate you can understand and you can make their journeys easier join the team at recovering from religion and remind someone else that they are not alone and someone is here to help to find out more click the volunteer tab at recoveringfromreligion.org
3: Uh, it's, this is a little hard to
1: interpret. Um, I'm gonna make a guess at a, what I think is a plausible interpretation, but you know, this is, um, this is not by any means the final word. Um, the parietal area is sort of at the uh, back half of your brain. And um, there's uh, an area just to the, you know, right at the sides of those called the temporoparietal junction. And that's critical for self other discrimination. And as that may break down, you'll get different kinds of activity in that area. So this is a plausible but not necessary
0: interpretation. Now, when well, you say self, self, other determination, that means I can distinguish myself from everything else around me. Is that what you're? Yes. About? So
1: what you know? Are you at? This is an area that um, seems to act strangely when people have these mystical experiences of union with the universe or union with God. And speaking of mystical experience, um, uh, we can, there've been several studies of, again, attempting, you know, can you make someone have a mystical experience on demand in a, a brain scanner? Well, maybe, uh, but you can ask them to try, and some of them are good sports and are willing to try. And so, um, again, you see these same sort of these, these parietal areas and also a medial area that we'll come back to um medial frontal area and these back parietal areas are are going to be um a recurrent theme in in this presentation so that's those are it's a little hard to interpret but again you see some areas are active you can also ask the reverse question what areas are inactive or what areas prevent mystical experience and here there's been a different kind of study that's been more popular and that is. Um, you know, veterans returning from wars or uh, people who suffered occupational injuries um, often can be tracked for decades and uh, you can ask them about their religious experiences. And it turns out that, um, you know, people get brain injuries all over the place, but most of them don't have much um, effect on, on religious experience. Except uh, with prefrontal lesions, people with prefrontal lesions tend to have many more mystical experiences than uh, normal, and certainly than people with other kinds of brain injuries. So, um, so I think we can say that there's certainly some correlates in the brain, but it, it, at the moment it's not. There's not a complete story about this. So, I've talked about sort of mystical experiences that um, you know. Many people have, but what about these really extraordinary mystical experiences? These so-called near-death experiences, um, and you know, every decade or so, there's a big furor about them, and someone claims to have, you know, proved beyond a doubt that there's, you know, a soul after death, etc. Um, and I think you've you've all seen these kinds of images. Um, let me. I want to isolate the key claim here. And that is death is assessed for a human being by the heart stopping. Um, and, you know, whether that is really stopping brain activity is a key assumption behind this. Um, and, you know, the, the usual, you know, argument by the people making these claims are that, well, you know, as soon as the blood flow to your brain stops, you know, your brain can't function. You don't, you don't have, you're running out of oxygen. The brain's a very energy intensive organ. Um, and it's, this is of course, something that's not, you're not gonna test uh, on a human being <laughs> for obvious reasons. So could you test this claim empirically in an, in an animal? And actually a woman named Borgian uh, at the University of Michigan, just down the road from me, uh, tested this about ten years ago and published um, in the National Academy of Science uh, about six years ago, where she stopped the rats, stopped the hearts of rats while she had uh, electrodes in their brain. How she got funding for this, I don't know, but it's not an expensive experiment, so um, I imagine it wasn't too hard. Um, and what was uh, in, interesting was that she found um, very rapid, uh, brain activity, which is usually a hallmark of, of um, sort of conscious, what we think of as conscious perception, well after um, the, the uh, you know, the heart was stopped. And uh, the, the, the key here is that, um, you know, although you see on this EEG, it looks like all these big waves are just coming to a stop, right? And that's what people normally say, okay, the, the brain has stopped. Uh, but if you look closely, the, um, the fine waves, which are the, the faster waves, which are the ones that are usually associated with uh, perception. So, so the, these big slow waves are typically associated with sleep. Uh, and in this case, anesthesia. But these fast waves are typically associated with uh, perception or or action or, or attention and those are continuing um, for up to 30 seconds in this rat after the heart has been artificially stopped um, and uh, i think we have some reason to think that the human brain might go a bit longer but uh, of course as you know when you have suddenly awoken from a dream you can dream an awful lot of stuff very quickly um, <laughs> when you're when you're when you don't have to act it out. So um, I'm going to give some tentative summaries right now, and that is that, generally speaking, there's more activation of the striatum or basal ganglia, is another name for that, during prayer or religious observance, and that's the same region that's um, active whenever you experience intense longing or intense desire, whether that's for sex or money or food or uh, ambition, what have you. Um, so um, I think, you know, at the moment, we don't have a coherent explanation, but we, we can say that a lot of this, um, you know, religious practice is some, you know, to some extent, a sublimated desire. And that's something that I think some of the, the psychologists have suggested uh, before. So let me pause here and take um, questions or objections. Um, so I think I'm going to turn to Kara and um, to some of the others or Eric uh,
0: yeah. to read read some questions or comments. Yeah. Um, real quick, I like how you said the, um, the religion seems to be sublimated uh, desire. Um, what? How how could we determine like if these spots of the brain that were lighting up weren't necessarily like an an antenna that was receiving something from another, from a spiritual dimension or something like that. How can we be sure that it's really material and not like uh, some supernatural thing interacting with those spots in the brain? So I guess a, a fair,
1: you'd have to, in order to answer that question, you'd have to have some limitations on what kind of interaction what kind of energy transfer or what kind of process might be reaching into the brain from the ethereal realm. Um, In fact, our modern EEG started with someone asking that very question and uh, thinking that perhaps trauma experienced by soldiers at the front could be broadcast by radio waves, which had been just discovered, Uh, and reach somebody's brain. Um, And so he started recording from people's scalp and he thought he was detecting radio waves, but in fact, he was detecting the intrinsic oscillations of the brain. And that's where our our EEG started. Um, So let's say, as far as any kind of force that we know of, electromagnetism or the strong force or weak force or gravity, none of those, really can you know, penetrate the skull to any significant degree and you know, affect the actions of individual cells within the brain. If you're imagining some sort of force field beyond our current physics, I, of course, I can't, I can't falsify that. I can't provide any evidence why that couldn't be true. But the, the levels of activation that people are recording are well within bounds for normal human experience.
0: Carrie, okay, you got another question?
3: Yeah. Yeah, we've got another question here. Um, someone was wondering, um, is prayer different when someone asks the experimental subjects to pray as compared to what might be happening when they're doing it on their own? Or is there a way to tell?
1: That's, that's a fair question. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's something that bedevils all sort of neuroscience experiments about you know, complicated human you know, uh, um, mental processes. Is, is it the same? And of course, you know they're in a noisy machine. You know they're they're claustrophobic. Um, it's probably not as good. So that's a fair that's a fair point. But at the moment, this is the best we can do. Uh, there's similar results we get with EEG, which is a lot less noisy and less uh, invasive, although less
0: specific. That makes sense. Um, I know here in the US, there's, for a long time, there's, we can't, we couldn't have really done any experiments with like psychedelics, but I imagine there are starting to be some uh, studies that are coming out that kind of are looking into psych- psychedelics inside of, uh, and and brain function. Um, have any of them, or do you know of any of them that have kind of compared these uh, the the play, the areas that these psychedelics activate versus the areas the, that people, when they have religious experiences, are are activated.
1: Uh, that's
0: that is exactly the question
1: I, I was trying to research before this talk, um, and I couldn't find any published work yet uh, addressing that question. I know that people are asking the question. Um, it you know psychedelic research has just become sort of quasi legal in the U.S uh and it's still very hard to act you know labs take a while to get up and and running and um so I'm imagining that those sort of experiments are being done this year uh, or would have been done this year if, if they hadn't been blocked by COVID and probably we will see some reports of them within a few years
3: yeah that's interesting um, you know, another question that some people were wondering about, too, was um, in these studies, uh, have they ever done it where they had some people who believed in God who are praying, and then another, like a control group of people who don't actually believe but are like going through the motions of praying, um, and is is there some difference uh, when people either are truly believing in it or, or just doing the action but don't believe?
1: Uh, Fair question Um, and actually I'll be talking about such a study with regard to belief not prayer in just a minute so why don't I transition to the next the next stage.
3: Yeah we we did that on purpose perfect segue. Okay
1: all right so now let's we've talked about um, religious experiences uh, but what about belief and 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 faith. So, the experiment that um, I think you is closest to what Kara was asking about was by uh, Sam Harris, and that's the same Sam Harris who you know uh, wrote the the atheist books. Um, and uh, he actually did a PhD in neuroscience uh, for for his own interest. And um, one of the studies he he did was to read. Um, you know, religious uh, creed statements and sort of commonly agreed factual statements to two groups, some of whom were believers and some of whom were atheists. And um, the um, two conclusions, uh, two main conclusions that I'd like to highlight are first that, uh, generally speaking, um, your brain works harder to disbelieve, to be skeptical, than to accept, to, to accept a suggestion or to, to agree. So generally, overall, your brain is working harder when you uh, disagree or you are, are not accepting what someone's saying. With one important exception, and I shouldn't say just one, but with a couple of important exceptions in terms of the regions that are, are, uh, are working less Or, or in other words, they're working more when you are uh, believing or accepting what someone's saying. And those are these um, ventrum. I'm going to highlight this area in particular this ventromedial prefrontal cortex. So, we're looking at a a sort of 3D image of a brain as if it's been split right down the middle. Um, And I can tell you, no no people were harmed in making this picture. This is a magnetic resonance image. Uh, nobody's brain was actually split but um, you know this is what you would see if you were to split the brain right down the middle so this is this frontal area right behind your eyes and um, you can see that that's an area that is um, much more active when you are accepting when you're engaging and assenting to what someone's saying so this is an area that the believers would be activating but the non-believers would not when you when they're talking about Religious uh, statements. The other areas that are active are back here in the um, close to the temporal parietal junction, and the area that I've mentioned before. Again, you know, are you sort of separating yourself from this person, or are you sort of entering into a sort of at um, least, you know, kind of rough union of mind with them, and. Um, so those are, I think the those are the key areas. Um, he did a follow-up study um, where he's looking at you know which you know which act which areas are more activated in religious people by religious statements. Um, and again, it's mostly medial areas. This figure is very complicated, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But um, it's it's these areas. Um, now, it's not just Sam Harris, there's several other people who've done similar studies. Um, again, again, the, the Holland and Paulus study uh, was contrasting testable versus, you know, in principle, empirical statements versus statements that, you know, could only be believed or not, they couldn't be tested. And uh, they find broadly the same kinds of things um, when, um, you know, looking at testable you know, I'm sorry, statements of faith tend to activate these, you know, medial prefrontal areas here, this is a sort of a, a blown up version of that of those previous uh, images. Um, and they also active, they also activate these temporal parietal junction areas the areas right at the right where the temporal cortex this area. Um, this area meets the parietal cortex this area. So. Uh, It's nice to see a completely independent study finding more or less the same things. That's not always true in an fMRI study so it's um, makes it, um, I think, more credible. So what. um, Okay, so I've just talked about brain regions but I haven't told you anything about what they do, or why we should care or what this means so let's just take a step back. and ask about well what does this ventromedial prefrontal area actually do and why is it special and uh so um the what it does is that it's it's the area that's most active when uh people are reflecting on or thinking about or fearing for their closest relationships that is with their parents or children or spouse or uh you know, uh, community or with God, if they're religious. So this is an area that, um, is very strongly activated when people are concerned about, uh, losing a very, very important relationship. Um, and so this is an, if, if you, if you have wronged somebody like you wronged your spouse and you, you're really upset about this, that's the area that's working very hard. Okay. Now, um, there's, this is an area that we share, of course, with with other primates, as we share just about every brain area, except that it's proportionally much, much larger in human beings. So again, if you sort of scale up a a chimp brain, you'll get something that looks more or less like a human brain, except for a few areas that are like five times bigger than they should be. And this, you know, this is one of them. And um, so it's, you know, I think you can argue that it's, it's uh, selectively been very important for human evolution. Um, I think another argument for its importance is that um, there have been this massive expansion in the projections from that area to the other parts of the brain. So these um, massive axon tracts going from this these medial prefrontal area and orbital frontal areas to um, Uh, both to the other frontal areas and also to your temporal areas uh, where you're you're sort of uh, holding your memories. And um, so there's much more connection and, and also they've recruited much faster connections than chimpanzees do. So I would argue that both the large size and the intense wiring suggests that this is one of those critical areas for human brain evolution and that that's been an important part of uh, our evolution as a species. So, you know, I think we can come back to that and, um, you know, start thinking about interpreting some of these earlier studies in terms of, you know, what what those brain areas are doing. And it seems that a lot of what they're doing is in fact um, something that's been selected for, and that is maintaining these long-term relationships. Um, now, um, there's certainly, um, actually, maybe I'll, I'll skip this slide just in interest of time. So what about some of the other aspects of, of religion other than prayer, uh, or, um, or belief? Uh, what about, let's say self-righteousness or, uh, uh, one of the complaints that many non-religious people have is that religious people like to tell others what to do and how to live. Um, and what can we say about, you know, brain activity when you're telling someone else, you know, how to live? Uh, and that is, it seems that um, um, two kinds of of concerns that motivate uh, uh, that kind of of of, uh, tell, of telling people how to live are, first, a concern with purity or sanctity, and second, a concern with authority. And those two concerns seem to have distinct patterns of brain activity. Um, the concern with sanctity seems related to higher activity in um, these sort of lateral regions. So here we're looking at a, a human brain with a little bit of the sides scooped out. So you're seeing a brain region that you never actually see in, in typical presentations. Um, and it's called the insula. Um, and it's um, fairly large in human beings, but it's also very active when you feel disgust. So if you're walking by the garbage can or you know your neighbor's dog has done its business on your lawn, uh, that's an area that's very active. It's also an area that's very active if you feel that someone's cheating uh, or um, been, um, you know, l- you know been morally suspect that's, um so that's certainly an area that is is very active in um in, in a concern with with purity um and it seems that uh concern with authority correlates with high amygdala activity the amygdala kind of gets a lot of bad press we sort of think of it as you know one bad part of the brain just mediating fear and anger that's not really true um there's Um, it's a very complex place, uh, and at least in children, um, it's as active when they're expecting something good as when they're expecting something bad. Um, And and people with a sunnier disposition actually keep some of that. They they maintain activity even when, um, you know, you're anticipating something good. But maybe it says something about our society that Or uh, that for most of us, uh, the amygdala activity is usually associated with unpleasant, um, you know, uh, emotions like fear or anxiety. Um, So um, again, we're trying to interpret this data, and uh, I think we probably have a clearer interpretation than for mystical, you know, for religious experience. um, In that, you know, a lot of these studies and 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 certainly there have been similar studies of political uh, ideology, um, and they all find activations of rele- of these uh, regions, like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex that are related to close social relationships, um, and to loyalty, um, and also regions related to self other discrimination. So, I think we can at least tentatively draw a conclusion that. Um, that religious beliefs are not primarily about rationality or about making sense of the universe. They're primarily about maintaining important social relationships. Uh, And for, you know, if you think about, you know, for many people, and and again, uh, this is perhaps more true now in America than it is true now in Europe, but uh, for many people, churches are the place where they can make, you know, they can make those relationships. So let me pause here and um, take any questions or comments. Maybe yeah, we'll just was... take two or three minutes.
0: Sure. Um, and that was kind of one of the questions that was asked is, uh, are we seeing um, these uh, some of these same areas of the brain light up in animals other than humans? Um, and I really do like how you brought up the or one of our close cousins, the the apes and and kind of the difference in size of uh that uh, area that deals with community uh, how we how we perceive and, and are connected to community but are, um, you also mentioned some other places in the brain where uh, when we think of prayer or, or possibly have a religious uh, experience light up do are you are we seeing any areas like that uh, do we are there analogs in in other animals there are analogs in primates but um, there don't
1: seem to be, clear analogs, there certainly are not clear analogs for either of those areas in rodents. Um, And I don't know enough about the wiring of elephant and dolphin brains to tell you yes or no about those. But I think um, generally speaking, the prefrontal areas are most different in the different orders of mammals. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if those are, you know, what we're seeing is perhaps limited to primates and perhaps a few other animals.
0: And would you mind giving us a real quick tour of the brain? Like, like pre pre front, like it seems like you're talking about a roadmap like frontal and then the before prefrontal is before that. Um, is, is there like a, a quick way we can kind of. Sure. Okay. So this? frontal
1: cortex is basically everything ahead of the halfway point, And that includes, let's say motor cortex, which operates sort of my arms and, and legs. And then prefrontal is basically everything in front of that, which sort of organizes my actions, or at least we like to think <laughs> organizes my actions. Uh, uh, temporal refers to the sides. we have this well, like, like your large, folded over temporal lobe, which is important for memories. And parietal is sort of most of what's behind the midline until you get to the visual at the back. And that's, again, you know, very, very crudely involved in sort of orientation and keeping track of where you are in space or where, where imagined objects are in space.
0: And the amygdala is way down.
1: No, the amygdala space. is, again, in the center. So you remember those pictures I showed oh, in the basal oh, okay. ganglia. Basically, you think of the cor- cortex space is just a word that means rind. And um, so if you think of any kind of fruit, most of the older long-standing parts of the brain are <clears throat> in the core. And the rind has sort of a little overgrown uh, in humans, um, so so amygdala um, and striatum and thalamus and hypothalamus they're all sort of in the center, and they're you know usually two of them. Got it. Got it. Thanks.
0: Kara.
3: Yeah. So we had another question. Someone was wondering also about dopamine and whether that is involved in any of these religious experiences or when people are praying or believing um, and wondering, is that maybe also something that would be encouraging people to continue to participate in these experiences, possibly even like an addictive type of thing?
1: Um, That's a very good uh, suggestion. And, And I think that's likely to be true, but I'm not aware of any data that actually confirms that. Uh, it's hard to measure dopamine in living brain, living human brain. Uh, you can sort of tap people's cerebrospinal fluids, but that's pretty invasive and pretty disruptive. Um, I'm not aware of any study you know, done for non-health reasons for uh, measuring dopamine. Hmm, got it. But it's plausible. No, I, I think it's likely true.
0: Now, there's recently, uh, well, I guess within the last decade or so, a, a new tool that uh, I think neuroscientists have, like the transcranium magnetic st- uh, stimuli. Like you basically are directing a magnetic field to like some very specific points in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I understand, uh, some of these, if we point the, this tool at that part of the brain that uh, are, are lighting up in these MRIs, um, that the, that they're getting the same experience. So is that sort of, it seems to me like it's like uh, another um, bit of evidence that, hey, um, what's lighting up in the brain? Yes, yeah, so assess- you
1: can induce some weird experiences. Um, I, I think there's a fellow in, in Sudbury called Persinger who, who does some of these kinds of, of experiments. And um, so I think there's, there's some evidence, but it, it doesn't seem, To my knowledge it has not yet been sort of formulated in a coherent theory. I almost mentioned Persinger but didn't. (laughs) Let me um, go on a little bit further then. This is the last third and um, let's okay can you see my screen or? Yes. Great okay so let's talk about you know some of the other things that get Bandied about like mental illness and and genetics. So, um, is it true that religious feeling is heritable? So I, I think we'd all agree that a specific religion is not in your genes. You're not you're D, nothing in your DNA codes for Christian or Muslim or animist or Buddhist um, or Hindu. So um, but you know we might ask whether, uh, certain aspects of your approach to religion, whatever religion you're participating in, whether those are are heritable or related to specific genes, and um, there was a study in 2010. Um, a colleague and friend of mine was was one of the authors to uh, estimate, you know, the heritability of different aspects of religiosity, and this seemed promising uh, because. Um, You know, it seemed that certain aspects of, of, that you might consider part religious have different kinds of heritability, which is, um, suggests that they're really distinct. Um, And uh, so spirituality overall, a sense of, you know, there there being something more to this world uh, was 50% heritable, which seems rather high. Um, love and forgiveness uh, was very unheritable. Um, but surprisingly, the idea of, a, or the focus on a personal relationship with God was quite heritable. So this was very promising. Uh, this is only 11 years ago. Uh, but we haven't found any genetic variants that actually are related to any of these traits. Uh, so you'd think if something's 50% heritable, you'd ought to be able to find some genes that carry that heritability, Uh, but we can't find any. Um, There was a study, or sorry, a book published, uh, gosh, I think 16 years ago called The God Gene. And it was about a vesicular uh, trans, um, monoamine transporter two, which is involved with dopamine. Uh, So it's a reasonable hypothesis. Um, but basically nobody's been able to replicate that. Um I, I know the author personally, <laughs> not surprised. Um so um the uh I think we have to say that there's suggestions of uh you know some of these aspects of religiosity being um related to genes, but so far we haven't found any. Now, to be fair, uh, most of the behavioral traits um, that, you know, we were confident we would find genes for uh, turn out to also have very, very tiny effects. We found, you know, lots of genes related both to mental illness and to behavioral traits, but it turns out that there's no one gene for extroversion or one gene for schizophrenia. There's thousands and they all have very tiny effects. Um, So it's very you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to predict from looking at someone's DNA whether they're going to be an extrovert or an introvert or religious or not. So I think we have to at the moment say it's, it's not looking very likely that there's a, going to be a strong association yet. Well, we can look at maybe some other, you know, biological measures like what about brain structure? So brain structure is certainly influenced by genes. So what about some of uh, you know, values that are often associated with religion. Um, so for example, group loyalty or authority is typically a typical conservative value that's often associated with religions. And a nice study about nine years ago um, found what to my mind are some of the biggest effects we've ever seen uh, you know, correlating brain anatomy with specific behaviors, Uh, and it wasn't a small sample size. So I think that that there's, you know, that that, that there's some merit to this. Uh, In particular, again, not surprisingly, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, um, the size of that has a fairly high correlation with um, various social measures, how much you value loyalty, um, as well as um, how many friends you have. Uh, And it's also correlated with, you know, a deference to authority. Um, the, um, you know, the interpretation of this is a little hard because we're, you know, so many things are correlated with so many other things that it's it's like a nutrition study. You know, everybody who eats any one thing healthy, you know, the, the study finds that that's associated with, you know, lower risk of heart attacks, etc. But of course, they're all doing hundred other things that are healthy as well. And so it's very hard to attribute it to a specific cause. And the same thing is true with these correlation studies here with the brain size. So it may not be the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, but maybe some other thing that's correlated with that. And also we have a little bit of a question of cause and effect here. Um, Generally speaking, a brain region is larger if there are either more cells or more connections between the cells. And certainly if you, use a brain area a lot you grow more connections it's harder to grow more cells but you can easily grow more or not easily but with a lot of work you can grow more connections so we don't know if it's the people who care about these things that are you know developing more connect you know more connections or synapses in these areas or whether it's they were born that way um and um and they've become uh, you know, more, more socially oriented.
2: Um, real,
0: real quick, Mark, would you mind explaining what you mean, what this means, uh, like 55% correlated or 45% correlated? Um, 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 it's a little over my head right now. Sure.
1: So if you were to plot, let's say the size of, I should have, I should have had a picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you plot, let's say on one axis, the horizontal axis, you plot, you know, your, um, brain the size of that brain area and you plot on the vertical axis how many items they endorse in a questionnaire that tell that asks you know do you value you know this aspect of relationships let's say more than you know something else like money or fame or um what have you uh you know and basically the people who endorse more of those items saying i well i really want to be loyal to my friends um more than lots of other things um, will tend to also be the same people who, you know, out on the axis who have these larger ventromedial prefrontal areas.
0: So depending on the spread of the dots along that, that range is kind of gives you that percentage of correlation.
1: Yes. Right. So a hundred percent correlation would be perfect alignment. You know, one is completely predictive of the other 0% correlation means they have no relationship to each other. Um, Probably a better measure is, you know, predictive accuracy, which is typically the square of correlation. And in this case, we're looking at a predictive accuracy of twenty-five or twenty-seven percent. So it's not, okay. it's not something you. It's not so that it's not the case that you could just look at someone's brain scan and say, okay, that person has one hundred and thirty-five friends. Um,
0: it's, yeah, but you could the, almost say, like, there's a twenty-five percent chance that this person has one hundred and thirty-five friends. You could
1: say. Let's, let's say there's a, a you know, 70% chance that they have more than the average number of friends.
0: Got it, okay, got it, great, thank you. Okay,
1: well, um, let's, let's also consider um, neurological issues. Some of you may know um, someone with Geschwind syndrome. Uh, so people with temporal lobe epilepsy uh, become increasingly obsessed with religion over the course of their life and, and tend to write a lot about religion. So you may know somebody like that. Um, and this has been observed for quite a while that, um, that uh, temporal love epilepsy seems to uh, increase uh, obsession with religion. So that leads us really to the question of, of psychiatry and religion and mental illness. And I think many Atheists would like to believe that religion causes mental illness, and um, you know, and and certainly we we get this in the news. Uh, it's very frequent, you know, when someone who's psychotic or has a psychotic break and does some violent acts, um, so that they get in the news. And remember that most people who are psychotic do not commit violent acts. Um, the uh, it's it's a minor small minority, but of course they're the ones who are in the news, and it's fairly common that you know, the, the newspaper will, will say that the person says, well, God told me to kill, you know, all of these infidels, or God told me to kill, you know, these other people. Um, and we, you know, we think, oh, that's, that's religion causing that. Well, there's certain, the data suggests two things. First, that people who are psychotic talk a lot more about religion, they use religious imagery a lot more in describing their life experience. And that's, Perhaps suggestive of something. But if you look at the sort of the actual rate of psychosis, you know, how many religious people, you know, have a a psychotic break versus how many non religious people have a psychotic break, the numbers aren't really that different. So at least, you know, religion certainly um, is very prominent in many psychoses, but it doesn't seem to be a cause. What about depression? This is one that you often, you know, get into arguments here in the United States with people who tell you, well, even if, even if you don't believe in God, if if, uh, yourself, you have to admit that believing in God is good for you, because, you know, it seems to be associated with less depression, which is, of course, the most common kind of mental illness um, uh, here. So, um, most American studies, in fact, find that moderate religiosity, so not your flaming fundamentalists, but but you know, people who are seriously religious um, but not fanatics, uh, have a lower rate of depression than um atheists or agnostics. Um that's that's been found a number of times. Um however. The studies in Europe don't find such an effect, and a few of them actually find higher rates of depression among religious people in Europe. Uh, so that seems like a bit of a paradox because we usually think of European and American societies as pretty similar. Um, but uh, I think I'm, this this is probably the most common opinion, but it's not uh, you know the final word. It seems that the uh, that the protective effect for depression in the united states is mediated partly by the fact that you have a community here that um you know in a country where it's hard where most of us are strangers and partly by the sense of certainty or sense of meaning in everyday life um so uh, one study has actually said well let, let's not look at agnostics because this or the you know this is this is a whole mishmash of people who including a lot of people who don't know what they believe or why they believe it. Let's look at people who are serious atheists um, and um, and they and this study found and of course it was done by an atheist, which, which I think is fine, um, found you know, and I think it was the right discrimination to make, found that you know that the, the people who, who knew what they believed um, were just as healthy emotionally as people who are moderately religious in the. US. So that there's essentially no difference, and I think that's the fair comparison. So let's come back to the question that I started with: Are people wired to be religious? Um, and I, I think both Dawkins and Gray are are correct uh, in that you know religion is not something that's evolved uh, or been selected for specifically. But I would say that humans have been selected for the kind of social performance that religion draws on. So religions are are really human creations drawing on and integrating some of the uh, evolved human capacities that have been selected Um, and they reshape them and integrate them in different ways to advance their their religious agenda, which um, we can discuss whether that's good or bad. So I don't think that um, I don't don't think Dawkins is entirely right that it's an accidental byproduct. I think that it's um, you know we've we've been selected for this kind of of, um, you know compulsion to be to be believing and thinking what other people believe and think. Um, And I think John Gray is right that often in in atheist movements you see some of the same kind of dogmatism um, and sort of doctrinal purity that you also see in monotheistic religions and but i think that those are characteristics of our mind not characteristics of religion Um, and so i think with that let's wrap up um that um you know religion is many things across different societies uh, but these different ways of being religious sort of draw on the human capacities, evolved capacities for social imagination and conformity and absorption. So let's pause there and I'll take final set of questions.
3: Great, yeah, we've had several more questions come in. Uh, One that came up was uh, someone was wondering, have there been any studies to see if there's any difference between prayer versus something else like meditation? Uh, in In people who are in the the brain imaging scans.
1: Yes, I meant to put that in, and um, sorry, I forgot. Um, yes, they they are they're quite distinctive. Hmm. So uh, prayer, um, as I mentioned, prayer seems to uh, activate the the striatum and and sort of these centers of longing and desire, um, whereas uh, the uh, meditation tends to repress the activity there. Intends to enhance the sort of um, what you might call the alpha rhythm, the the, the uh, sort of idling, uh, attentive idling uh, of the brain. So they have quite different effects.
3: Oh, got it. Okay, that's interesting. Um, now. Okay, someone else was wondering about um, religion being something like, almost like a trained response, like a Pavlovian thing, you know, ring the bell and good things come to you. Um, Is there any evidence that that kind of thing might be going on, where people are simply learning that they're rewarded every time they engage in a a religious activity or or experience, and that it's simply a a self-reinforcing kind of thing?
1: Well, I think there's an awful lot of self-reinforcement in daily life, most of our daily lives. So I, I would say yes, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's an explanation of religion any more than it's an explanation of driving down, commuting to work or you know, buying my habitual coffee at wherever I buy my, my coffee. Hmm. Um, you know, these, these are certainly practices. I certainly get more reward from my coffee than from prayer right now, but anyway. <laughs>
3: I mean, especially since it's pumpkin spice season.
1: (laughs) Actually not a pumpkin spice fan. But anyway,
3: I know that's controversial. Didn't mean to start a debate.
0: (laughs) Okay, any other questions or or comments? Yeah, we've got uh, uh, quite a few more. Um, Do you have any idea on uh, how religion would, um, and especially kind of looking in the brain, how religion would connect to or... Uh, affect the fight flight, freeze, or fawn um, response?
1: I'm not aware of any study on that. If I had to speculate, I would say that, be, you know, again, because of this very thick tract coming out from the medial prefrontal areas, which you know, as we've seen are very much involved in religious belief and to some extent in religious experience, they, one of the peculiarities of human brain anatomy is that there's this large projection from there directly to the amygdala. And um, Mm. so I would expect that uh, religion or for that matter, any intense loyalty to a group could Really, you know, keep you in place in fearful situations could keep you keep your feet on the ground under fire, so to speak. Um, and and um, but I'm not aware of any data to actually warrant that.
0: Got it.
3: Okay, Okay, well, we've got plenty more here. Um, Someone else was uh, wondering about uh, when you're talking about heritability of spirituality and uh, interest in these religious experiences, uh, could there be also uh, some environmental factors uh, that are coming into play there uh, that might affect the the actual structure of, of the brain that people have and, and so might result in someone having Uh, more activity uh, in these structures that might be more associated with religiosity? I think the example someone was giving was something like ADD being associated with limited blood flow in the prefrontal cortex. I'm not familiar with that, but um, do you kind of get the gist of the Mm -hmm. question?
1: I I think that's um, entirely reasonable, and I suspect that's part of the truth. Uh, The question Mm -hmm. is, how much of the truth is it? Um, (laughs) I mean, we, we generally see that when people use a brain area more, um, they build up more synapses or more connections, more wires between all of the cells in that specific area. So if you, you know, if you practice, you know, um, sleight of hand magic or the violin, you'll build up a lot more synapses in your motor, your the specific parts of your motor cortex to do with your fingers and hands. Hmm. Um, but, you know, how much of what we, of the differences we see, which are quite large, at least by the standards of the effect sizes we typically see for most behaviors, um, how much of that um, is explained by experience and how much is explained by genetics? That's a completely open question at this point.
3: Mm. So if you're growing up in a, a situation where from birth you're being exposed to these practices and ideas, that could be actively changing the structure of your brain so that we wouldn't later on be able to know the difference, whether it's kind of like a chicken or an egg thing, uh, which came first?
1: Um, well, it's certainly shaping the fine structure.
3: Hmm.
1: And I expect it would shape the big, the, the large-scale structure as well. Um, again, I, I don't know of any studies that actually show that, but hmm. that's what I would expect. Um, I mean, we can certainly see When kids are raised in deprived homes, violent homes, or neglectful homes, um, you know, most of their prefrontal cortex is somewhat shrunken. Uh, So we do see, you know, serious effects on the brain, um, which are, you know, if they get caught early enough are somewhat reversible, but not, not entirely.
0: Kind of what you're describing too, with uh, um, repetition and practice, um, and connecting to a certain part of a brain, time and time again, having that building, the and strengthening the um, that pathway. Um, it kind of seems to trigger or, or come up, bring up for me. Um, Going to church every Sunday on a regular basis, showing up and being given a message, uh, a you know very similar message, or even uh, Wednesdays and Sundays, um, and that it also seems to correlate or be be uh, uh, could associate itself with what we see on social media um, as, as well. Like if we continue to see. Uh, right-wing uh, memes or content, or left-wing memes or content, would might strengthen those pathways and pull us um, one way or another. Uh, do, do those? Uh, am, am I off track? Do those kind of same effects uh, show up or are, are enhanced by that kind of regular? I, I don't um, know that anybody's done a study of
1: how brain anatomy changes depending on which websites you listen to on a regular or you know frequent on a regular basis or which podcasts you listen to i'd be surprised if you could see a large-scale effect of of course you know the the devil's in the detail so to speak you know it's this it's the fine structure of the synapses that form the specific memories and beliefs um, and those would not be visible uh, on a large-scale scan um, you know, basically every time you are, you know, doing, you know, doing a new action, you're, you're forming, you know, hundreds of thousands of new synapses and, 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 you know, eroding, you know, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of older synapses. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's surprising, you know, it's it's an astonishing amount of turnover in the brain. We have, you know, something like you know, several trillion synapses six trillion synapses in our brain and those you know our turnover um, you know in, in the memory intensive areas are, are on the order of several percent per day you, you do the math and you're looking at you know looking at uh, you know, many millions of, of synapses are degraded and many millions are new ones are formed to replace them and of course if you are spending your your uh, time on you know, Fox News, your, a lot of your synapses are going to reflect what, what you hear there or somewhere else.
0: That kind of seems to imply that uh, in some sense, uh, if we change our habits, change our behavior, the brain is um, changeable enough or plastic enough to uh, rewire itself if, if a, <laughs> a few percent of synapses change every, every single day. That's, that's, that's a lot more and a lot faster than I thought uh, it's a lot more than most of
1: us thought frankly wow this was a this is a bit of a surprise even to most neuroscientists wow. uh, it's, just, it's just been discovered within the last
0: 10 years uh, Incredible! Can wow. you got another one
3: yeah i do um actually uh someone was wondering about so we've we've talked a lot about how religious belief and spirituality uh can be or maybe in some cases can't be uh, measured using these brain scans and things like that. Um, so how does that differ from or not differ from something like humanism? Can we see that in a brain scan or some other measure?
1: I, again, I've, ne- I've never seen a brain scan of you know humanists contrasted with religious contrasted, let's say with people who aren't involved in any movement. Um, I would... Ex- you know that's a good question and of course humanists are a diverse group as well so uh i i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to bet on what you'd
0: see
3: i don't know interesting
0: i like that uh let's wrap it up the q a with um one final question and it's going to be uh off of the uh your neuroscience work and more towards your humanism work and um kind of would like to hear from you about two things, like what is humanism to you, and how is that any different than um, any other religion, Uh, because it seems to me to be more like a philosophy and less a religion. So if I were to say in just a few
1: words, I'd say that humanism is the search for practical wisdom to human problems and to the attainment of the best kind of individual life and the best society. And that is, I think, very different from at least most people's understanding of religion because we are searching for wisdom through human experience. And that would be history and science and and, lived experience as opposed to being told what to do uh, by a religious authority. And I, I think one of the things that you know has as resulted in an unfortunate, I think, conflict uh, between humanism and, and religion cross-culturally is that in many traditional cultures, but not in the West, in many traditional cultures, humanistic wisdom is expressed in kind of traditional religious idioms. Uh, but when you actually look at what they're saying, it's in, entirely based on human experience and, and sort of the gods are sort of in there in the background, you know, warranting it and stamping it and invalidating, but it's derived from human experience. Um, and I think if we throw out everything that has any kind of association with religion, we, we sort of declare war on a lot of the wisdom traditions of lots of other societies, uh, which I think is unfortunate.
0: I to, to wanna to hear you kind of saying, um, religion in one sense is like a closed system where it very, it very little changes within it. But um, humanism, on the other hand, is a framework that invites uh, change as new information comes along. and um,
1: I, I certainly think so. I think that humanism is by no means finished. <laughs> you know, the final revelation of Christianity and a, a final revelation of Islam, etc. cetera, they've all happened. <laughs> but the final revelation of humanism is yet to come. Uh, we, we don't know what we're going to find out. And I think that's especially true I mean, I don't expect big surprises about the structure of the universe or the atom anymore. Maybe they will come, but I don't expect them. But I do expect substantial shifts in the way we think about uh, human, um, human mind and human uh, society.
0: Dr. Reimers, thank you so very much for joining us this evening and um, really, really enjoyed this talk. are welcome. Glad to be,
1: be with you.
0: Yeah, Um, we have a hangout afterwards. Uh, Do you have a little bit of time to kind of... I do have a few minutes now, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, Excellent, excellent. Um, uh, You know, before we... uh, I kind of like to do this before we wrap up. Do you have any final thoughts or final things that uh, you wanted to say that we didn't really uh, cover or talk about? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, final things. Um, (laughs) uh, I
1: think that... I think that we should think about religion not as a single entity, but really as a sort of collection of sort of different experiences and different agendas that uh, are unified perhaps by a common metaphorical framework, but which are um, you know, in- interpreted by each individual quite differently. So your religious experience and your leaving religion may be quite different than mine and that um, the, you know, the, you know, I, I found it very difficult to leave religion. Some, of, some people find it very easy. Uh, I'm jealous, but, you know, uh, and, and the particular issues you're facing may be quite, quite distinctive. So I, I, I think we should understand that, you know, human beings come in a in tremendous variety um, and that's um. But maybe that's enough for a wrap-up.
0: Well said, I I appreciate that very much. Recovering From Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local recovery from religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.